Hi everyone, this is Clint and Claudia Talk About Movies, the podcast where we celebrate our love of cinema and the discussions around them. Thank you for listening. So we have a guest this week, um, Clint. I feel like you should probably introduce him. We have Aton with us this week, uh, my good friend, a lover of movies like us. And uh, what are the movies that you, you picked for us this week? Uh, originally, my girlfriend and I were going to come on here and talk about um, Under the Silver Lake and uh, uh, Inherent Vice, but we um, did not watch them. Uh, so, um, so that didn't happen. And, uh, my girlfriend's out of town right now. So I, I, I watched, uh, just on my own bone tomahawk and cell and, uh, brawl and cell block 99. And I offered to talk about these cause I thought, you know, that's a duo. It's like the same director and, um, similar, uh, arcs in terms of the ramping up of mm. violence in both and things. Um, so uh, yeah, so Bone Tomahawk is a Western, and Brawl and Cell Block 99 is a um, uh, neo-exploitation film of some sorts. Uh, I don't really know what I classify it as, but uh, yeah. Had you seen these two movies before? I had not. I had never seen an S. Craig Zoller film before this. Yeah, me either. Clint, have you? Yeah, uh, I saw both of these, like... Uh almost exactly like a year ago mm. um, when I was still in school. Um, yeah. How would we like summarize, uh, briefly summarize this movie? It's kind of like a captivity film. Like these cannibals kidnap these people and a search and rescue mission ensues and, you know, pretty much fails. <laughs> uh I don't, I don't, that's the shortest summary I could come up with. I mean, they, they free, um, I guess the woman. Yeah. I don't remember her name either. But, so, I mean, the people who are kidnapped is this woman and, um, a guy who's in the prison who had encountered this, like, uh, tribe of what's referred to as troglodytes in the film. Um, yeah and sort of fled from them and he was hiding in town and had a, a contentious encounter with law enforcement and got shot in the leg. And one of our main characters wives is, I guess the doctor's assistant, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the doctor's yeah. drunk. Uh, so he can't tend to this person who's been shot in the leg and she goes to tend to him in the prison. And that night the troglodytes raid the, a uh, little western outpost town and kidnap uh those those two people yeah and uh, a rev- a revenge slash search mission uh ensues yeah it just occurred yeah. to me that one uh sort of like precedent for this story is heart of darkness which i don't know if you've read that claudia yeah in high school it's been a while but K- kind of similar you know like yeah. traveling inland um Mm. towards like this primordial mm. animal evil 
kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it, and it's the white. It's supposed. To, it's kind of like also like the white man out of his element traveling through like an unforgiving territory. And I think that comparison to Heart of Darkness is like, I think really apt because it's like that similar like very sinister uh, primordial thing um that's going on here that brings up these like questions um and uh and it it's kind of reckoning with this evil like on both sides which i thought was like really interesting i don't know i had, i've just like never seen a movie like this before like both movies um and i don't know it like it especially now like made in the last um like 10 years. I think this came out in what, 2015? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I was just like really, really excited about the filmmaking style yeah. for both of these and um, the way that he like just paces it. Um, he, I think, likes longer movies, it seems like. And uh, I don't know. I just am really intrigued by his like projects and like what he wants to do um, in his films. Yeah. Yeah. Well, making these films today, especially Bone Tomahawk, there's almost uh, no moral. I mean, you can argue for it, but I don't think there's much of a moral yeah. saving grace in in telling these stories. But there is sort of an aesthetic power that seems to like grab you in, yeah. even despite like it's. Um, uh, the amorality of telling the tale mm. itself because it's sort of you might say it's a guilty pleasure this tale or it's um indulging in i don't know if not racism like just sort of like a questionable mm. like bloodlust mm-hmm. but aesthetically it's so bizarre uh, almost kubrickian especially in uh uh, uh brawl and Selvog 99 that like the the mm. aesthetic exercise is it seems like maybe that's one of the big draws for the filmmaker. Like he's really getting to like take like a really pulpy story and just like apply this like harsh aesthetic uh, method to, to presenting the story. Yeah. What, what would you call the aesthetic of either both of these films or bone Tomahawk? How would you classify that? Oh, just like, just like very, it's well first of all it's like very patient you know like it gives room to breathe and it doesn't try to move the narrative quickly and the camera usually is like very static um it doesn't like there's not like lots of jump cuts or close-ups uh there's like no close-ups i would say actually um so we're always at like a distance and the camera is very tranquil too like it just sort of moves with the characters very slowly and peacefully, and then once the violence actually erupts, which which you talked about, Aton, like how the films are like building up to violence, um, it it never is like um, enamored with the it's the camera is never enamored by the violence, you know, like in lots of movies like westerns with shootouts, like there will be close ups on the faces, the camera will sort of dance and move around and like there's none of that um so it's applying like sort of a new i feel like like a new formula to the presentations of its stories mm-hmm. yeah 
I think it's also like it's like the slowness and like the dialogue too in both of these movies. I think especially in Cell Block, but it, there's like moments in Bone Tomahawk too. Um, I think about the scene with um, Patrick Wilson's character and he's like reading that poem in bed. Um, and that's just like not something I would have like expected out of like a movie like this. Um, and and um, just like the use of very minimal music um, and the music that I think is in is like done by Zoller, I read somewhere, or like he helped make it. Um, but it's very like sparse, which is also very interesting um, in terms of yeah. like the, the style. Like usually when you think of like, yeah, like Westerns or like any violence, it's usually stylized a lot of the times. But here it's like, it's kind of separate from all of that, I'd say, or it has its own kind of aesthetic and style. Well, yeah. And like a big thing about Westerns is like half the time the score is better than the film itself <laughs> yeah. in a lot of Westerns. Yeah. Like you think of like the Magnificent Seven and like all that we, all that you people really remember is like the score mm. or, you know, uh, or, or Sergio Leone Westerns, mm -hmm. like the score, you know, is a huge part here. It's the only music in Bone Tomahawk is at the end when uh, Arthur and Samantha uh, have escaped there's that sad um little chamber orchestra piece mm. that plays but that's that's really it i think mm -hmm. in terms of music i think uh, part of that is that it gives the visual content room to breathe um i mean like you were saying claudia like the the violence is so stark and almost like static um I, like in particular i'm thinking of the scene at the end where we see like i I don't even want to call it a human sacrifice because they they murder that man and I don't know if it's like if there's any religious component to what they're doing. I yeah. think they're just going to eat him. It, it, I, I can't tell. It, it's it, it's almost like a pig slaughter or something. It's like a very mm -hmm. mad because like they bust him right down the middle uh, and like open mm -hmm. him up so like all the fruits fall out kind of so to speak. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah they get the most out of him and um, mm -hmm. the way that that shot is so I think there's no camera movement. Like pretty, I mean, I think it cuts back and forth between like the people in the cage and him a few times, but yeah. like it's pretty much just like yeah. a static shot of yeah. this man getting dismembered. Just, just Kurt Russell in the background, like yeah. there's a cavalry coming. <laughs> yeah, the death will be yeah. avenged. Yeah, um, and then Chickory's like, "Why'd you say that?" And he's like, "Well, I'd want to hear the same thing when I die." And then, and then Chickory <laughs> does that when Kurt Russell's mm -hmm. dying. He's like, "Don't worry." Don't worry, mm -hmm. Sheriff, there's a there's a cavalry coming and it's so <laughs> fucking pathetic and pitiful. Yeah, it's like a much worse version of that. You, you, you don't believe yeah. Chicory when he says it, but you kind of believe Kurt Russell when he does. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, one way to talk about this film, I think, is like it starts with um, a mistake and it's just filled with a compounding of like worse and worse mistakes. Like... To me, the first mistake was that he mm. shot uh, Buddy the Thief. He shot Buddy the Thief in the foot um, when he didn't have to shoot him to apprehend him. Right. And then the, probably the next mistake would be maybe shooting the um, the Mexicans who happen along their camp. Um, yeah. There's like, you know, I mean, Clint, you were talking to me about this, but, you know, there's, long, there's a long discussion about, like, whether or not he had cause to shoot them. Um, and like whether it was justified, um, I guess it's kind of like a legal debate almost that they have, um, 
because it's um it's matthew fox's character um brooder right that shoots them yeah and like it's it's revealed later that like he like killed like o- like over a hundred yeah um, yeah like native americans and then talks about like how his family was killed by like some natives too so like he has this just like thirst um for revenge it seems like for anyone that that's like different than him um he's just ready he's ready to fight so yeah his character to me is really interesting because it's like uh he's it when we first meet him he's kind of like a dandy uh i don't know if you'd want to call him what how else to to call him that he's like this well-dressed man with white suits and little hat yeah yeah he has this like very effeminate or not feminine just uh dignified presentation of himself that mm-hmm. that sort of hides this like what what we were talking about like this animalistic bloodlust for revenge um mm. that seeps out once we get to actually know him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh 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 yeah and there's that scene where he's like i've killed more more indians than any other man and then the mm-hmm. the indian professor is like i think it's him he's like that's a weird boast. And then he's like, it's not a boast. It's a fact. Yeah. I, I liked what you said, Clint, about how, like, you could read this movie as a compounding of mistakes. Because, mm-hmm. Clint, it was, you had said this to me, like, a day or two ago, but there's the line where uh, after Brut, uh, is it Bruder or the Sheriff? I can't remember. After the people sneaking up on their camp, uh, the two Mexicans get shot. Um, he says, like, I, I just taught those Mexicans a lesson in Manifest Destiny or whatever Mm. and when you pointed that out to me i started thinking about the movie as a kind of representation of manifest destiny Mm. moving moving westward into the untamed areas encountering others like those two mexicans and killing them uh Mm -hmm. probably without cause um and then culminating in this like confrontation with like this like um, like this id of wild other otherness, um, which I think the trog delights really represent because they're, they're cannibals, they're incestuous, they're, you know, just like every bad thing to a Westerner, you know? And then there's also the component of having to like reclaim the stolen white woman as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so like at the, all of that, I think compounds to be like a good sort of man- metaphor for what manifest destiny was to these people as they went West. Mm-hmm. And I think it's funny. Yeah. It's funny to also understand that as this massive compounding of mistakes um, and, yeah. and, and errors as they make that Westward journey. Yeah, that's true. Huh? I agree because it's like the West is or America is founded on mistakes or something, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, with with racial or racist uh, underpinnings <laughs> that just get <laughs> yeah, worse it seems and really worse. accurate. Yeah, like it's all of these kind of like idiot men kind of like going around just making mistakes and yeah, confronting basically the the worst like in their imagination of what they imagine like savages to be it's like the extreme worst um is represented here in these like cannibalistic um like subhuman um like monsters savages which is really interesting and i know clint you like talked about um you texted me about how 
there was like comparisons to I think the Hills Have Eyes, right? Is that what you? Yeah. yeah. Could you like talk more about that? Because yeah. I'm really interested. Uh yeah, I'll just mention a little bit. Just so the Hills Have Eyes is uh, a Wes Craven film, and it got a remake in the 2000s by Alexandre Ahab, and it's uh, basically like. Uh, this ex-cop and his family are like going into the desert and um, they take a wrong turn and they, enc- they, f- they end up encountering and being destroyed by these mutant freaks who were just like, uh, who went, underwent radiation due to the atomic bomb because they lived in, um, they lived in te- near testing sites. Uh, and then they moved into these caves in mountains, kind of like the troglodytes, and um, in a sense, on, on a certain level, they represent, um, you could say they represent like the lower class and their sort of destruction and demoralization by the bourgeoisie. And so these freaks are sort of like the, the unrepressed rage of the lower class against the upper classes. Um, and in a way, you could see this film as sort of like maybe like the unrepressed rage or the id, I think we talked about that, like the id of the Indians against the white people. Um, And they're so, they're so, um, what's the word? They're so distanced from the Indians that the Indians cannot accept them as Indians. Uh, There's that, we talked about this, there's that, that professor who's an Indian, uh, and Eitan mentioned this, you said there's like no reason, there's no way, f- where does he teach? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, is there a school in this town, like a college? Yeah. You know, like, it's, it's, it's very strange that he lives there, that there is there is a Native American dude who presumably like went to the East Coast to study something. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, it's, and then went back out west. It's just very weird, yeah. yeah. It's very weird. Yeah, and so he's kind of like, um, this gets away from the Hills of Eyes, but he's kind of like a, I, I think you were sort of alluding to this, but he's kind of like a deus ex machina to um, take away from the more explicit racism that would be implied if there was no mm-hmm, one saying mm-hmm. that they aren't Indians. Um, so by him saying that they're not Indians, suddenly it becomes like less race. The, the project, their project is suddenly like less racist. Like they're, um, they're not going after Indians. They're going after yeah. inhuman. Yeah. Uh, I think, monsters. I think it seems like the, that character's sole purpose was kind of to, to clarify that and like to, um, cause it would be way too simple. It would just be like another like Western, um, but he, like it kind of like I feel like if it didn't have that character maybe would have been received in the same way I think Eli Roth's movie which I never saw but I remember like he got all this backlash because it was like all of these like it was like some indigenous tribe against like oh, green green inferno okay yeah um yeah which is a basically just a remake of um uh the the 80s Italian cannibal films uh-huh um yeah which they it well what makes it okay yeah you're right you're exactly right because so when the hills have eyes what makes this like not fucked mm-hmm. up is that they're like they're not yeah. human they're yeah, mutants yeah. they're not just poor people but they're like these freakazoid mm-hmm. monster killer monster murderous um mutants 
whereas in like the cannibal films in the 80s they're literally just like these these tribes that are still human mm. that practice mm-hmm. cannibalism but it's so explicitly like mm-hmm. immoral what's mm-hmm. happening there's no justification like there mm-hmm. is in this film yeah so you're totally spot on with <laughs> like Roth um, uh, point yeah um yeah, and I think, like, um, it's interesting to think of this movie, like, the, the genre of, like, Western, and, like, it, through, like, the the savages, like, it, it introduces, like, a horror aspect of it, too, and, like, how I think horror and sci-fi kind of stuff have always, like, been a stand-in for, like, post-colonial narratives of, you know, like, others um, being represented by, you know, whatever sort of, like, animal or monster, Um so I think, I don't know, like, I think that's why this movie is, like, really fascinating to look at is because it complicates the genre um, of, like, a Western and the narratives I think we have around that and, like, um, thinking about, um, you know, the savages as, like, the id is, like, also a really interesting point. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, like, working on a lot of different levels, I think. Everything y'all are saying, it, I'll see how well I can articulate this, but like it puts the status of the Trog Delight tribe in a weird place for me. It's like, are we supposed to understand them as like, um, like if we go with them as kind of like the id of this native savage, uh, whatever, you know, it's like, are they like sort of like the concentrated, most extreme, um, assemblage of sort of like like you were saying clint like uh like native resentment against the colonizers and things like that or are they meant to be sort of an offshoot from the more typical tribes you'd think of like comanches and apaches and that sort of thing who's somehow like taken a wrong turn and mm-hmm. gone way off track in terms of like just normal human mm-hmm. human life cycles um because if it's the former then I think that's still pretty racist, I guess, like to mm-hmm. to say that like um, the the essential heart of like Native American um, uh, sentiment or re-sentiment, resent, resentments mm-hmm. against these people would be like an incestuous cannibalistic uh, clusterfuck of evil, you know, <laughs> it's uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it depends on if that's like a... Well, this is just to complicate it further, but if saying it represents the sort of rageful id, uh, is it like a post-colonized id or a pre-colonized id? Um, As a post-colonized id, it makes sense, like after the Trail of Tears and the thousands of massacres, what's left is like this festering wound in the psyche. Um which kind of makes sense but if yeah it would be extremely racist if it was like that was all along the yeah um, the their like natural primal state yeah yeah which i think the professor does say like these people have been around for a long time um you know there's like a long lineage of this of this tribe um that has no name and has no language and all this sort of thing which makes me think that they're like the most like um like primary kind of tribe almost like the the least developed like the most sort of still in their original state or something 
Um, yeah. But that's confusing because then, like, they do all these body modifications and, like, they have some tools. Like, they can shoot bows and arrows. Um, and I, I guess they can ride horses. Like, they steal horses. So, you know, so, yeah. like, just how developed they are is a question. And in one sense, they could be, you know, like you were saying, uh, this sort of racialized id of the Native Americans, or they could simply be like the Ur humans, um, like the just like the they could represent the whole. I don't. This film you can read it so many ways, but there's like they could be like the Ur the Ur humans, or like basically like where they're the sort. Of, they could be like the violent underbelly of these characters themselves um, that they're encountering. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, they could also. I was thinking, and this is something I, I've noticed in other westerns where um, Native Americans are often just sort of part of the landscape. They're like nature itself, um, and the unforg. They sort of are a manifestation of the unforgiving uh, landscape of the West. Um, this in his inhospitable, dry, arid land that. Um, or a challenge to sort of like mm. move through. Yeah. Which which is like also interesting and like also complicated I think because native people are like usually associated with like nature um like as being one with yes. nature it's like also I don't know it's um kind of tapping into these like kind of cultural associations and stereotypes that we have um and complicating it and like I don't know one thing I found really, which, like, I still don't know why this detail was added or, like, if you all have thoughts on it, but so when the, the like, um, Native, like, professor speaks, he talks about how um, this, the tribe, like, doesn't, they don't eat black people. Did you all catch that? Do you, do yeah. you like, know, like why that like because it 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 would be interesting if this was if we like read this in like a post-colonial lens or if it did represent like but they didn't say like they only eat white people they like so it's like implied i don't know it's just it's it's interesting (laughs) yeah 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 well but it's to set that up just like there's a there's a black stable boy who they will they're willing to kill (laughs) but Mm -hmm. they won't um uh, take back to eat. Mm-hmm, they they mm-hmm. kill the fuck out of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which could, like, I don't know, it could represent some sort of, if it was, like, if they have, like, a thirst for, like, white blood, it could represent, like, a, maybe a desire for, like, could represent rage, and it could, like, I don't know, represent, like, trying to, uh, to reach up into like the hierarchy, racial hierarchy or something. I don't know. It's just, I thought that was like a really interesting yeah. detail. Um, yeah. I, I don't have too much of a thought on this, but there's, you know, a lot of encountering of otherness throughout the film. Um, like just the the core group of characters, their encounter with the Mexicans out in the desert and then mm-hmm. with, the, with the tribe itself. And... Mm-hmm. I mean, that to an extent goes the other way, I think, you know, as well, that this mm-hmm. tribe would encounter these others. And I, yeah, I don't I, I don't have more of a thought on it than that. But um, yeah, well, this film's also full of um, stereotypes in terms of 
characters which I loved because I've been watching a lot of westerns and you have like the um you have like this old crotchety deputy from Richard Jenkins uh which is by far my favorite character in the film um he has that line where he the the flea circus dialogue where he's like you ever been to a flea circus and uh he's like I think I think they're real and then the uh uh, Samantha is like, yes, they're real. And then she looks at Kurt Russell and winks. Um, just just another instance of like this, this like giving false hope <laughs> to these idiots. Um, but yeah, you have all of these sort of archetypes, like the uh, the manly, uh, the most manly alpha male with Kurt Russell, who they all get subverted at the end of the film. Like usually there's like some saving grace or like mm-hmm. there's some... Uh, there's something that 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 justifies what the character's doing, and ultimately, I don't think um, any of these characters who die um, get that saving grace. Like uh, the the dandy brooder just turns out to be like a racist asshole who just dies in the desert. Um, uh, Kurt Russell just turns out to be like this incompetent sheriff who just makes mistake after mistake, and Shikari, I guess, is the only one who may have a saving grace and that, like, he seems to be, like, innocence personified, um, in a sense. But still, I mean, he dies, <laughs> you know. He's, he's not He's not going to make it. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about um, uh, Patrick Wilson's character? Or, like, what did you make of him? I, I I thought the performance, like, just the physical performance was pretty great. Just, like, the way he... Because I've, I've, I've experienced something similar to him uh, with bone breaking. And, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just his commitment to, like... Mm-hmm. And it's just so gross. Uh, you know, every time he, like, looks mm-hmm. at his wound or he, like, falls or yeah. trips, there's, like, this gross crunching noise. Yeah, you could hear like that's the one thing like you could yeah. hear all like all of the sound seems very amplified in this movie. I guess because there was no music, so like there's everyone's like feet and like the creaks of like the floor, and I mean like everything is kind of very loud. But yeah, the uh, the early scenes with him I found actually quite quite beautiful the relationship between him and mm-hmm. uh samantha and mm-hmm. you mentioned that poem he reads where he's like wait mm-hmm. that's a, that's not a poem mm-hmm. um it's a letter he wrote yeah um that's something similar to brawl and cell block where there's like um this mm-hmm. intimate relationship that's taking place within this like hyper masculine ultra violent yeah 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 that's the commonality between both of them yeah, and with the sound design too in Cell Block, uh, whenever a bone breaks, it's like you feel oh, you yeah. feel that in your ears, you know, like it's just like this really distinct snapping and cracking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I, yeah. I just want to say about Bone Tomahawk that like one thing I like about it is how it's a it's an extremely simple story that's like i mean literally it's like linear you know it's like a straight line out west um and but it's got this really nice grounding at the beginning of like you know like these emotional connections between the characters and stuff and 
it's just well made. It's just like a well, it's just, you know, it's just like mm-hmm. movies deserve praise, I think, for just like telling a good, simple story. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it, it does a great job at that. Yeah, I, I think that's what really attracted me to, to like both of these movies is um, in, in the center of like all of this violence and um, that like we have these like relationships that seem like very honest and like just the way that um the woman in Bone Tomahawk um talks to Patrick Wilson's character I think at the beginning um and she's just like very honest with him and they just like have this moment and um I don't know that was like really surprising to me in like a movie like that like I wasn't anticipating that and then I mean in in Cell Block there's that like amazing scene um towards the beginning when he like you know, finds out that his, uh, is it like his wife? I think, yeah, they're married, right? Um, and, um, finds out that she's been cheating and like just spends like a while beating up the car and like breaking the windows and then like just calmly goes inside and then they like have an honest discussion. And I thought that was like, just so cool. And then they have like a really mature, reasonable conversation that like evinces like a, like a lot of history between these two people and like, like understanding and misunderstanding as well. Uh, but like just care for one another. Like you can tell that they really care about each other and it's just, it, it it immediately just right off the bat adds like a bunch of depth to this that wouldn't have been there otherwise yeah they're they're both ex alcoholics i think um because he says you've been clean having they're either ex alcoholics or ex drug addicts because he's like you've been clean haven't you and she's like yeah have you he's like yeah of course i've been clean also the nickname for his baby is the koala and i thought that was so cute I know those he had a lot of sweet moments in this movie um there's that one scene when they're in bed together and he's just like adjusting the blanket on top of her and like um talking to his like baby and like it's just very sweet um it's like kind of a long scene um in like a movie like this I guess and I just thought that was like that also subverted my expectations and complicates his character more too Um, yeah yeah Mm -hmm. uh so i guess we can move we should probably move on to brawl and cell block 99 um yeah uh i don't know how to summarize it (laughs) yeah it's like a um, man has to fight for his family i guess basically basically he's trying to make money he's trying to make bank and then he suffers the consequences i guess of of that i guess he had gone at the beginning of the movie he had gone straight i take it like he had been involved Mm -hmm. in drug dealing and then was working at an auto mechanics place and then it starts with him getting fired or laid off because i don't know if he was fired Mm -hmm. exactly it seems like it was an economic decision yeah it was exactly yeah and then yeah he finds out his wife has been cheating on him um but they decide to try to stick it out and reconnect and then there's like a flash forward about a year and a half later i think 18 months is what it says and uh 18 months yeah and uh he has gone back into the drug business and um but has gotten a much nicer house yes 
and like two two really nice cars out front like big like suvs they look like escalade like really you know top notch top of the line and the house is huge and he's good at his job like you know like he uh you see like him like when he goes home he like takes the license plate off his car and like hides his car under a net and stuff oh yeah he like he, he takes all this really seriously and and all that you know yeah and then we get into this is something i've noticed in both films is a sort of the 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 status of mexicans in these films is always like a questionable one um and so here we get he gets called in after that intimate moment with his wife he gets called in to his boss uh to come in for this new deal um with these dealers and there's like this weird like racial mistrust i don't know if it's racial what it is he think he says they're junkie but he's a skin like he's a skinhead so like that whole thing like you you're constantly questioning like is this guy a racist and he does race he literally does race baiting later in the film when he has to get in the fight in the prison yard uh he's like he says the flag isn't red white and burrito so it's just like this highly charged tension filled atmosphere for like a white liberal um viewer of these films um, that we get, that's, that's, that's where we, that's where we, that's where it starts when he meets the, um, the, uh, the goons for this guy, for this dealer. Uh, he's like, I won't work. I'm not going to work with them. The, there's also the scene, and this is before we know who he is and like that he's a sensitive guy, I guess that, uh, after he gets laid off, he's driving home from work and, um, is this lo- it's a really like kind of long scene uh he pulls up next to these two uh hispanic american guys um in their car and he just looks at him at them and they look at him and they're you know he's got a shaved head and a fucking like looks like a german cross on his the back of his head so he so you think so it just look you know it looks like there's a confrontation between a skinhead going on with the skinhead yeah it is i mean it's not like i'm not gonna say it's like a maga movie or anything like that but it is just like i mean it's a story of like a white dude who like loses his job and then like is like driven to crime and mistrusts the foreigners who he has to do crime with and then is like and he's like patriotic he's a patriot he's got two american flags outside of his house but then he's um exploited by the prison system and by the criminal enterprise that he's a part of. Um, so like both sides of the law, uh, put him in places that he doesn't want to be in. Yeah. If anything, he's betrayed for his loyalty to like the blue lives matter agenda. Like he (laughs) killed, he kills those dudes to like save the lives of cops. Yeah. Which I guess we should say that. So like the, the job that he gets hired to do with uh, these Mexicans is to go and like get some drugs from a dock. Like it's they're they're underwater, and he they mm-hmm. they they get the drugs. They go on the boat and they get the drugs, and then they take him back. Uh, and then he senses something is wrong, I guess, and he throws his bag of drugs back into the water. And then his two Mexican uh, co-workers. Uh, keep walking and get into a shootout with the cops. And then he goes, 
he shoots his uh, criminal friends, his criminal allies. And I don't know. I, I thought at first that he was trying to protect the criminal enterprise, I guess, by killing these guys, like essentially like removing the possibility of them being arrested and interrogated or something like I thought he was going to try to do like a I'm a good guy with a gun sort of a thing, you know, right place, right time. I saw the shootout happening or whatever. Um but somehow they're still able to time to – I guess they, they – I think there's a line, like an offhanded line about how there was cameras around or something like that. So I guess they have footage of him yeah. walking with them or something. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the main part of the movie starts. One of my favorite scenes <laughs> is him uh, going into prison and he's in line at uh, at the intake. And there's this guy who is – He's in he's in a uh, Bone Tomahawk too as the bartender. There's this like long scene where he keeps getting sent to the back of the line, and he like he's like, "Can I keep my ring?" And uh, the guy's like, "Sir, I am not a metallurgist. Um, I do not know I do not know the contents and the details of your ring. I'm not a metallurgist. I I thought that was so funny." But yeah, then he gets like injected into this like brutal system, and he makes a friend. He kind of almost makes a friend with that guy, who's like his guide to the prison. Um, That's true. Yeah, though he's not with him for very long. Pretty yeah. pr- pretty quickly, he gets moved to the more maximum security prison or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Red yeah. Leaf. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we should we should just say that. Um, like what's at stake for him is that uh, Udo Kier uh, comes and visits him and um, uh, tells him that uh, if he doesn't kill this one prisoner who's in like the most maximum security block of the most maximum security prison, then uh, his wife will be – well, it's weird. So his wife's pregnant and she's been kidnapped and there's an abortionist who claims to be able to – Oh, another tie-in with Bone Tomahawk in terms of quadriplegic women uh, is able to remove the limbs from a fetus but leave the fetus alive so that it's born quadriplegic. Um, Jesus. And uh, so that I, that's that's the threat that he's up against. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jesus, that's insane. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, in Bone Tomahawk, that scene is so fucking crazy when they're, like, walking out of the cave. And you just see those women and hear their, like, moans. And, the yeah, you, they have, like, those things in their eyes. They're blinded. But, um, yeah. No, so, basically, uh, because he, because the deal didn't go through, he has to pay the consequences, like, doubly. Um... Not only does he have to serve his time, like, his wife's life is on the line. Yeah, um, there's, like, it's, like, really, so, like, I think the violence in this movie is really, um, which we talked about before, but it's, like, there's a lot of blocking, so it's, like, not a lot of close-ups. It feels very slow sometimes, um, and, uh, but it's, like, so beautifully shot. I don't know. It's, like, really fascinating. And then we also have, like, the potential violence of, like, his wife's life on the line. And, like, we see, like, the dude come in and, like, he has his little, like, 
get like set up with all of his tools and stuff. Um, like what an awful way to, you know, and I don't know. Um, so like, there's just like a lot going on for Vince, Vince Vaughn's character. What's his name? Bradley Thomas. I love that he also, he corrects someone. He's like, my name's not Brad, it's Bradley. Um, <laughs> he has like, I, there was just like so many lines in this movie that I like really liked. Um, some of which we mentioned already, but like when he goes into the, the second prison, um, he's like, smells like shit and smells like shit and dinner in here um because he's like with the in like the gross um cell and um yes and then i think there's like a moment right before he goes into prison and he's like i don't like to read i don't even watch movies if they have subtitles on um <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like really great lines and like the delivery is yeah. like really good too yeah. I think my favorite line is when Don Johnson uh okay, he Don Johnson is taking uh Bradley into cell block ninety nine and then he opens the door to this literal like torture dungeon and he's like uh I don't think Amnesty International would look too kindly upon the contents of this room. <laughs> um <laughs> and it's just like so full good. of like pliers and like saws and swords and like Mm-hmm. weird um <laughs> vices mm-hmm. um and then the, the the belt obviously yeah i'd never this is a new yeah. a new i've never seen that in a film before like a a shocker belt or whatever it is yeah i don't think i have either um there was so many good um curb stomps in this movie like i don't know how many there were but they were like like real real good um, best ones there's I've two seen. two big ones yeah um there's the skull the skull exposing curb stomp yeah and the de- decapitating the curb decapit- stomp at the yeah end. Uh-huh. yeah those are so good the skull exposing one really stands out to me uh, it's just it's so brutal and it's just it's just awesome it's just like oh my god <laughs> jesus christ you know that's great yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's an extremely like cathartic moment of violence. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I really like the scenes too, where it would just be um, Bradley in his car, um, and he would just be listening to music. I think it was like, you. It, I think it was all OJ songs. Um, yeah, made for the film. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's they wrote incredible. the songs for the film. Whoa. Um, that's cool. It's amazing. He brought them back. Like, I think their last hit was like Backstabbers in the 70s or something. Damn. You know that wild. song where they're like, Smile in your face. What you do? <laughs> you know that? Yeah, that's, that's them. Damn. Interesting. Um, yeah. I was, I was going to say that those scenes remind me a little bit of, um, I don't know why it like immediately came to mind, but um, in the the movie Broken Flowers with Bill Murray, like him, there's like just like a lot of shots of him like in the car listening to music, like maybe it feels like half of the movie is that, and that's what this reminded me too. Like it seems like Vince is just like reflecting in the car, just like chilling, and like I don't know, I just like love scenes like that. Um, where we're like with the character, but it's like still quiet, and they're just like 
doing really mundane things. I don't know. I'm a sucker for things like that. Yeah. I love those scenes. Yeah. I love, I love just, um, both of these films are like also like descents into a kind of like hellish underworld kind of vibe. And this one to me is like even crazier, just like the, the physical landscape of the, the final prison is so dark and medieval and like hellish and like all the just so grimy and you really get the sense of like the texture of like uh the dirt and soot on the floors and the shit in the cells um it's so gross it's doubly hellish when you realize too that his whole journey uh, i guess to cell block 99 is a ruse and that like you know like there's no one for him to or the person he thought he was going to kill isn't there um and he he's been asked essentially to like put himself through all this agony in order to be tortured like like that's 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 the end of this process for him or from the people who asked him to come there um from their perspective yeah. yeah yeah that's another thing that is highlighted i guess we could say by some of the camera work and the presentation of the film is the inevitability of one's like doomed fate yeah um yeah. it's so patiently presented you know with painstaking um slow pacing that in the detached camera work that it, you don't get caught it's almost like you're yeah. not allowed to get caught up in the hope of survival or something yeah, yeah. The, the the camera work and cinematography is worth mentioning i think uh because i was really struck by it um the, like mm-hmm. the, the detachment that you mentioned is very much present and like a lot of that i think comes from using like these really like wide shots within like a bedroom or something like that um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it just gives you the sense of like space yeah. and um I, I forget who one of you was saying this up top but like the like especially even with the violent scenes and stuff it's like um it's almost like portraits for something where you can see where every single person is standing and like their spatial their spatial relations are very well defined and then with the cinematography i don't know what it was shot on i i assume it was digital but like um it's just a really interesting color palette and um Like a kind of, uh, I don't know, just the way that the colors come across is very interesting. They're they're not muted exactly. Um, it, it, just the exposure is, is is interesting. I don't know how to put it. Yeah. I don't know how to put it into words. Honestly, I don't. I mm-hmm. I appreciate it, but it feels like it sucked the life out of the film or something. You know, because film, you're, you're right. It's digital, and film usually has like this really vibrant expressiveness to it with the colors that it captures and this a lot of the colors just seemed like dead or something in in the i didn't mind it i thought it kind of mirrored maybe vince vaughn's internal state um or like the tension that he has of trying to kind of deaden his rage um it seems like um yeah you know um like he, he has to mute himself so the world around him is also a bit muted. Yeah, I want to get into that because it seems like, so yeah, he's like basically like this killing machine that um, there's like a side of him that's like has a love for his family, but this other side of him, which just is this brutal killing machine that he's had to repress and sort of, I, I don't know, there, there's a sort of justice and he, he dies at the end and there's a sort of... Um, 
necessity to his death. Like he some something in him is so evil and violent that he doesn't deserve to have that family mm-hmm. life that that he wants so bad. I think I don't know. I'll I'll ask it a different way kind of um like this is my big question about the movie um is well, two questions, I guess. What do we make of the cross on the back of his head? And then also, is is he Christ-like? Um, which, yeah. like, is maybe a somewhat counterintuitive question, because Christ's never kicked ass, but, uh, um, <laughs> you know, like, but, like, he, he takes, he kind of takes on all of this suffering for the sake of others. Um, and he yeah. is, he, he suffers immensely um, throughout physically and mentally mm-hmm. and um he's i guess jesus would be the son but he he becomes an absentee father at the end you know similar mm-hmm. to like god in in the bible kind of um yeah and uh he dies and stuff you know so yeah i think there's some parallels there yeah the total sacrifice of oneself for for the ones they love for blue lives matter yeah (laughs) died for their sins yeah 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 Yeah, he died on the blue cross um (laughs) no i think that it is very poignant that he has a cross on the back of his head yeah um and so yeah you're right it's begging the question are his actions christ-like um and in any way any redeemable way um and ultimately, yeah, but only in a limited sense, I think. I feel like he mm. can't live because the enormity of the the enormity of his like crimes uh precludes him from actually living through like living to see his actions come to fruition or something, like actually like getting to know his child. But it is he does save them, you know, he does prevent yeah. the the death and abortion yeah um it is it is interesting to think about so like he is constantly like counting down the days until um his daughter is going to be born and then yeah. um but he also there's that scene um where the wife comes and visits him and he's like i don't want you in the court i don't want you to bring my my daughter over here like I don't want to see her until like I'm out of here um as a way I guess of like protect like you know I guess he doesn't want her first memory of him to be in like prison um but it seems like super harsh I mean the wife is like obviously kind of distraught about that too and um I don't know that is I I, I'm really intrigued in the, the idea of like the the Christ parallels um, yeah, really me too. His his last words are 78 days. I think that's his last yeah, words. Yeah, yeah. And then they shoot him. In the face. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's when, he, when he asks his wife, like, not to bring his child to prison and stuff, I, I, I guess it's when he still thinks that he's going to get, like, a three to four year sentence or something like that. And yeah. then it winds up being seven years. Mm-hmm. And, like, the severity of this dawns on him that much more, I guess. Um, yeah. But I don't. I don't think that he like reversed course at that point. It was like, okay, well now I do want my daughter to come visit me or anything. Um, I think, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he's mm-hmm. still sticking to that very strict uh, separation. 
Yeah, there's an awareness of the narrative. I think there's an awareness of the storyteller or something like that at that point with the sort of his doom is being his death and doom is sort of being like set in place, you know, like the inevitability of of him ever seeing his kids again is just sort of starting to like click more and more as the film progresses. Like after he kill after he breaks that guy's bone out of his arm, the the uh, security guard at the prison, like you're like I don't know what is that like another five years or something, and then and then when he kills those dudes in the prison yard uh, after race baiting them, that's like what a life sentence? Fuck, you know like yeah. he's never gonna get out. Yeah, yeah. By the end of the movie, he probably would have been sentenced to death in the court of law. So. I guess. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, but that scene is so, uh, it's so genius. Like when he just is like, he figures out how to like, um, how to, how to, how to break the belt by sticking his soles in between his back and the belt. And then he pretends like it still works and he steals the, the gun. Oh, I love, I've really loved that, that whole sequence. Um, the idea of him as being Christ-like is so interesting, and I, I don't have a good, a good read on it, though. Yeah, I'd, I'd need to rewatch it or something to say more about it, but, um, it's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's like an enormous symbol tattooed on the back of his head, yeah, and it's, it's like, huge. yeah. It's like what's on the poster, too, and stuff, like, it's, it's like the thing, you know, the symbol. Yeah. I, I also, I never thought of Vince Vaughn in this way but it makes so much sense like he's just this huge hulking monster um that if you didn't mm -hmm. like if and I think I overheard uh in an interview with S. Craig Zoller or someone say this like if you saw him on the street and you didn't know him as an actor you would just think I, I don't want to fuck mm -hmm. with this guy he's got this like really mm -hmm. menacing presence definitely Maybe the movie is just a metaphor for um, uh, Vince Vaughn um, dying for good cinema, and this movie marks like a resurgence in Vince Vaughn movies. Maybe or like you know, Zoller just really thinks that Vince Vaughn should be a big star again, like he was. Yeah, he used him again and dragged across concrete. So. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, the Vaughn revival. Mm -hmm. Vonessance. Vonessance, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, I guess to just sort of close up, uh, would you, uh, do you think you would like recommend this film, Aton? Yeah. Or these, both of these films? Yeah, I, I'd recommend both of them for sure. I We talked about Bone and Tomahawk more, but I think I liked Brawl and Cell Block 99 more. Um, it 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 just you could tell that that they it was made under better conditions and um it, i just think that the story is a little bit more nuanced and things um uh but yeah i i definitely recommend both um they both give you lots to think about and bone tomahawk is just like a great rip roaring uh just sort of adventure um movie i guess and <laughs> Uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 yeah. is great for if you just want to watch, like, vi violence, but there's there's more to it to take away from it and stuff. So, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, they're both really good. I I greatly enjoyed both of these, and I I don't know. I'm just like really interested in Zoller. Like I I think I'd heard about him before watching these two movies, but um, I've just been constantly like reading articles about him now and stuff, and just kind of intrigued by what he's what he's doing and what he's done, like how many screenplays he's written and stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's weird how like he spent like a decade trying to get into the film industry, it seems like. And mm-hmm. yeah, it took him a long time. And uh, now now uh, one of his scripts is being directed by Park Chan-wook, the guy who made Old Boy. Uh, so, you know, congrats to him. That's like awesome. Yeah, I would recommend these films, and I feel like if you need proof that, like, trashy films or exploitation cinema can be art or artistic, like, this is, like, proof of that. It, these movies, to me, they felt like uh, like what Quentin Tarantino wants to be able to do or something, um, yeah. but cannot, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it did very much remind me of Tarantino, too, in some ways, just not as, like maybe more I think edgy in the right ways um rather than I guess the way that Tarantino kind of goes about it I don't know less cartoonish yeah 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 so what are the films that we're gonna do um next week Claudia um so it's my turn and I get to choose and it is um Miss 45 and um the love witch and i've only seen the love witch out of these two so um you've I seen it like a couple they... times right yeah i've seen it a couple times so I yeah really you introduced me it. to that um yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. i i i saw abel ferrara's miss 45 like almost half a decade ago at the alamo mm-hmm. draft house with my friend natalie and I had no idea what I was in for. It's it's a really crazy film uh, yeah. about like a gun wielding nun uh, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or a woman in a, in a nun dress. Um, yeah. So I'm re- I'm really revenge. excited. Seeking yeah. uh, total revenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, I'm really excited. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of had this instinct that these two movies might go together even though I haven't seen Miss 45 but I think you know um female-led and like uh, ideas around um I don't know the love witch isn't necessarily about revenge but it's like I don't know kind of deals with like kind of kind of yeah it's like manipulation control I think asserting control. It's femme fatale territory. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I think I'm, I'm excited to watch both of these two, um, talk about them. Yeah, I'm so glad we're, I'm so glad we're bringing Abel Ferrara in because he his film King of New York is like one of my favorite films mm, ever. Yeah, I definitely need to watch more of his his stuff. It, he's such like an underrated director, I think, mm. uh, and obviously. Uh, her name is Maria Biller. Is that the director's uh, name? Anna Biller. Anna Biller. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, like insanely underrepresented, underrated yeah. Uh, filmmaker. Yeah, I think that's why this movie kind of sticks out to me all the time. Is like just how well shot it is, and the fact that she like designed all the costumes and 
um, writes and directs the movie too. She's just like very um, committed to like her aesthetics. Um, and I know she's only done this movie and then a movie before this called um, Vida, I think, or Viva. I never remember. Um, Viva, yeah. But um, I'm I'm like really excited to talk, to talk about it. So yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you for being here. It was great. This is really fun. Thanks for coming on. I liked it a lot. Bye. Bye.